Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, CURE. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Gemma Carvel to Seizing Life. Dr. Carvel is an assistant professor of neurology and pharmacology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She was the recipient of a Cure Taking Flight grant in 2015, studying how genetic mutations can lead to epilepsy. Dr. Carvel is now the principal investigator in her own lab at Northwestern University, where her team focuses on underlying genetic and epigenetic mechanisms. Dr. Carvel is also a recent recipient of an NIH New Innovator Award. She is here today to discuss epilepsy genetics and help us understand how genetic discoveries in the lab can lead to better therapies and cures for epilepsy patients. Dr. Carvel, thank you so much for joining us today. I am just always so appreciative and admire our epilepsy researchers and scientists. Um, there are not enough of you. And so thank you so much for going into this field. Um, to that point, what drew you to epilepsy research specifically? Yeah, I guess I really, I can't say that I was uh, particularly drawn to epilepsy research. I kind of more fortunately fell into it. And then um, because I worked really closely with a lot of family foundations um, and a lot of folks who are affected by this disorder, um, I really uh, became quite passionate about doing research here. So from a background perspective, um, I've always loved genetics. Um, and I've always been fascinated by how the brain works. And so um, I did my graduate studies in South Africa and then moved to the US with the idea of, I'll stay here for a year or two, I'll learn all the fancy new sequencing technologies that are coming out. And then I'll go back to South Africa and I'll set it up there. And I was here about six months and I was like, and I'm not going back. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are thrilled that you made that decision. Yeah, my parents were. <laughs> I can only not so much. But yeah, and I think a lot of it was, um, at the time, um, next generation sequencing, which is really the technology that we've used to identify all these genes, was really taking off. And um, it was through all of this gene hunting um, and working with fantastic clinicians who recruit a lot of patients um, and working closely with the families um, that we started to identify all of these genes that we know cause these very early onset epilepsies. And through working in that community, um, I've formed great friendships, I'm good friends with uh, many people who have children who are affected by these disorders. And that for me was incredibly attractive. I liked the idea of using science to help these kids who really need um, answers for what is causing their disease. I'm a little biased, but it is a pretty <laughs> incredible community. <laughs> it, is. it honestly is. Uh, so you sort of became um, part of the CURE research family in 2015 when you were awarded our Taking Flight Award. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about what that award meant to you and the research that you were able to conduct because of it. Yeah, so um, the way it kind of works in academics, so if you're at a research center and you want to progress further with your career, is you kind of go to grad school for five to 
more years. <laughs> and then after grad school, you do what's called a postdoc. So a postdoc is training after graduate school. And people can stay in a postdoc anywhere from two to seven years. And then the next big jump is if you want to stay in research, and specifically academic research, so at a in a university in a medical setting, is you need to figure out what is your own independent lab going to be doing. So what is the research that you really want to focus on for the rest of your career? And so I was really at that tipping point where I was spending a lot of time um, towards the end of my postdoc thinking about what is my lab going to look like? What do we want to research? And I knew I wanted to stay in genetics and I wanted to keep trying to find the genes that cause these types of epilepsies. But I also knew that I wanted to take the next step because we'd done really well in terms of finding these genetic causes. And now that we know the genes, we need to figure out what do they do in the brain. And what happens when you have a mutation in them um, in terms of the function in the brain? And can we use that as a tool to eventually figure out novel therapies? And so I decided to focus on a, a gene family of um, chromatin remodelers and transcription factors. And these are basically fancy names for uh, proteins that control gene expression in the brain. And it's really a neglected, or well, at the time, a pretty neglected area of research. And um, so what I did was um, I applied for the Cure Taking Flight Award, which is meant for this exact person. It's for somebody who wants to stay in epilepsy research but needs that help um, in terms of securing enough funds to be able to do their own research, but also the time to be able to explore those new and novel ideas. And so that's really what the Caretaking Flight Award allowed me to do. It gave me uh, the financial support to do that research. And then from there, the, um, the early research um, that we did and the findings that we made, I then used to launch when I started my new lab at Northwestern. So it's really that stepping stone. So we hooked you in to the you field, did. You did. got you to stick around, <laughs> exactly. um, which I love. And yep. now you have this incredible grant from the NIH. Um, tell us about the research that you're doing now that that, that grant has allowed you to do. Um, so it's the NIH New Innovator Award. And the idea behind this award is that it's for a completely crazy idea. But it's a completely crazy idea that if it pans out, could really transform clinical care for patients. Well, in our case, clinical care for patients. And so the idea that we had was um, that we may be able to use cell-free DNA as a biomarker. So what cell-free DNA is, um, so most places where people have come across cell-free DNA is with non-invasive prenatal testing. So previously, um, particularly with advanced maternal age, you would have an amniocentesis, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a particularly invasive procedure. And the idea there is to look for any sort of chromosomal abnormalities. But there are lots of risks associated with amniocentesis. And so what a colleague of mine had this great idea um, that he could look in the plasma. So if you separate out blood, mm -hmm. you get this top layer that's called plasma. And in there is what's called cell-free DNA. And cell-free DNA comes from a cell that has died and burst open. And when that cell bursts open, the DNA is released into the, into, eventually into the plasma. And it exists as really short little fragments of DNA. So roughly around 150 nucleotides, so really, really small. But what you can do is then study that DNA. So in the case of non-invasive prenatal testing, you can actually find fetal DNA in the plasma of mom. And then you can use that to determine whether the fetus has a potential chromosomal abnormality. So cell-free DNA has completely transformed 
NIPT, and now it's the first-line test, amniocentesis is not done anymore. So following on from that, we had the idea that perhaps we could use cell-free DNA from patients in epilepsy. So again, here the idea is, at least in a subset of individuals who are having seizures, those seizures can lead to cell death. And then when cell death occurs, those short little fragments of DNA may exist in the, self, in the uh, cerebrospinal fluid, as well as in the plasma of that individual. So what we're trying to do is ask the question, can we find cell-free DNA that originated from the brain in the plasma of individuals with epilepsy? And the idea there is we could potentially develop it as a biomarker. Um, one of the big challenges in epilepsy is that um, one of the only real biomarkers, if you will, is having an EEG mm -hmm. or having an MRI in the case of looking for structural abnormalities. And those are pretty tricky techniques, right? Because you need to, or approaches rather, because you need to go into the hospital, you need to be They're monitored. Very time consuming. You know, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And there is no peripheral biomarker. There's no way we can look in the blood and see if an individual has had a seizure or not. So it's a completely crazy idea, but everybody thought that looking for cell free DNA or fetal cell free DNA in the blood of moms was crazy, mm -hmm. and now it's mainline. So we're hoping to try and apply some of these ideas to see if we can use cell-free DNA as a biomarker in epilepsy. So it is diagnosing epilepsy using these, using the blood, which mm -hmm. is different than, say, doing like whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing, where you're looking more for the diagnostic cause. So this way, you don't have to spend three to four days in the hospital or longer waiting for that seizure to happen, you can just test the blood and diagnose the, the epilepsy from that. And you can potentially tell if an individual is having seizures, yeah. So it's a long, long way from being in the clinic, but that's kind of the end goal of if this were to work and we could find that cell-free DNA, this is one potential application. Hi, this is Brandon from Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, or CURE. Since 1998, CURE has raised more than $70 million to help fund more than 235 research grants in 15 countries around the world. Learn more at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to this episode of Seizing Life. You also mentioned um, exome and genome sequencing. Mm -hmm. So potentially we could actually do genome sequencing on the cell-free DNA as well. So there with the idea that at least a subset of patients who have epilepsy may have a genetic uh, mutation only in a part of their brain. So we call this somatic mosaicism. Uh -huh. So rather than every single cell in the body carrying a DNA mutation, only a very small subset of cells within the brain may carry that mutation. But those genes that carry that mutation would be the ones that would have broken down due to seizure and be the ones that you could find. Exactly. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, we're throwing around these words, whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to um, take the time to really dive into that because we have done um, mm -hmm. previous episodes, if anyone is interested. Um, we did an episode with Dr. Millichap and um, you can go back and, and listen to that one. But um, I think that that is that it's so interesting because there's only so far that um, the commercially available genetic testing can go, and there's still so many people who are left undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
I've only been a part of this community for the last four years. And even, you know, the testing and the knowledge that has become available in genetics is, um, in those four years, is outstanding. Um, from being deep inside the, the genetic research piece of it, what are the changes that you have seen in the last, you know, 10, 15 years? Mm -hmm. So I started this in this field about probably 10 years ago now. And back then, there were a handful of genes that we knew caused epilepsy. Maybe 10, 15, not very many at all. And some folks within the community even doubted whether genetics was going to play a big role in epilepsy. And now, 10 years later, we can do exome sequencing, we can do genome sequencing. I think what's been really exciting to watch is, one, for a lot of families, we can find an answer. Um, and that's, at least in the early onset pediatric epilepsies, that's anywhere between 30 and 50% of cases. And I think there are a couple of fantastic things that have come out of that gene discovery piece. One of them is um, this emergence of all these family foundations. So there is the Dravet syndrome foundation for um, individuals with SCM1A mutations, um, and SCM2A, just about every gene that causes epilepsy, we now have these family foundations. And I think that's been really rewarding to watch. Um, and I think the fantastic thing about these foundations is one, it almost gives everybody a home. It gives people a, a gene to coalesce around. Um, folks are starting to do natural history studies now because one of the big questions that families always have is, I have this gene mutation, what does this mean? Mm. What does this mean for my child? What is he or she gonna look like in, in terms of their progression in the next five to 10 years? And I think the family foundations, at, while it doesn't give you all the answers, and I think that's one of the frustrating things, at least it's a, um, you can gather with with people who are in the same very same situation as you, same gene. So I think that's been fantastic. The other part has been that we're really going to, in the next five to ten years, start seeing where once you can identify a genetic mutation, that there are going to be precision therapy choices. So we know this. Another good example is perhaps SCM1A. So here, if you have a mutation in this gene, there are certain medications that should be avoided. So I think more and more, as we identify more individuals with mutations in these genes, we can start to get a better sense of which medications work, which ones don't. Um, but then also moving forward, thinking about novel therapies. Um, there's exciting work in um, antisense oligos, uh, where they are trying to target specific genes um, to um, prevent seizures. Um, and there'll be a lot more tailored therapies based around those, those genes. And then lastly, it also enables us to um, study epilepsy in the lab. So if we know which gene can cause um, epilepsy, we can knock it out in fish, in mouse models, um, and we can study what happens when you have a mutation in that gene in terms of the function of the brain. Where do you see your research going 10 years from now? So I think in the next five, 10 years, like I said, I think that there are going to be precision therapies for some of these epilepsies. I think that is gonna be one exciting area of research. I think that um, there's still a lot of gaps. So I think we touched on biomarkers earlier. Mm -hmm. That's one of the really big challenges, right? So beyond does the, um, does the therapeutic stop the seizures? 
we're really poor at monitoring other outcome measures. Mm -hmm. So I think their natural history studies will help a little bit. And explain, what, um, you used the term before, what is a natural history study? Oh, so a natural history study is um, essentially trying to get an idea of what is the trajectory of a disorder. So in other words, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. is a great example, right? So you have um, an individual develop certain features early on, and then you know the course, the uh, natural progression of that disorder. Whereas in a lot of epilepsies, we don't know. So we know an individual um, can have seizures early on, but then we don't know how they cluster. We don't know about development. Um, so we don't really know what the natural course of the disease is in a very robust scientific way. I think when it comes to research, a lot of families feel very powerless. Mm -hmm. How can they help? In what ways can they get out there and, and push science forward to help their family members or to help themselves? Mm -hmm. So I think the only way we're gonna solve epilepsy is obviously through research. So I think any research opportunities that arise, I would highly encourage families to participate in. So again, my bias comes from the genetics, which is what I know most about for obvious reasons. Um, and I think that there are studies like Epi25, um, which is a big consortia um, that are enrolling individuals with epilepsy and doing genetic studies to try and again tease out what are those genetic factors. Um, there are other studies like All of Us, um, which is a more nationwide um, study. And um, in All of Us, it's not specifically epilepsy focused, but the idea is um, to enroll a million people in the US um, and to look at both their genome or their exome, um, as well as capture a lot of health information. So. Um, filling in surveys, those sorts of things. And again, there the idea is, it's the goal towards precision medicine. It's the goal towards, can we look at your genome? And can we look at your health record? And can we make choices, or smart choices rather, about which therapies are gonna be, um, uh, are gonna be the best fit for your genome? So I think broadly getting involved in any research, um, I think academic centers are probably the best place to be involved in research. Um, but if you go to sites like Epi25, there's long lists of um, clinicians who are enrolling patients. So I think any opportunity to participate in research is really what's gonna help us. It's what drives my research. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the reasons that I'm at an academic center like Northwestern, where there is a lot of collaboration between clinicians and researchers. Um, so I really think that's the way to drive things forward. How do organizations like Cure fit into that role or the, um, the family organizations? Um, what place do they have in this community? Mm -hmm. You heard from my own story, it was from working with family organizations that really inspired me to want to stay in this field. So I think the role of Cure and family foundations is kind of already what these foundations are already doing, trying to capture young individuals. Because there are a lot of fantastic scientists out there who are very interested in this type of research, but it's very challenging to be able to take that next step to launch your own lab in epilepsy research when it's incredibly underfunded. So there again, Cure 
gave me the Taking Flight Award that allowed me to launch my own career. I think that's a fantastic niche to help in smart young individuals to take the next step and explore their own ideas that also might be a little bit more crazy, if you will. We sometimes need a little bit of crazy to, mm -hmm. to make advances. So I think that's where Kira and others have done a fantastic job and I would love to see that being maintained. I guess to that, I'm, where would you like to see organizations like Cure focusing in the years to come? Where would you love to see science and research, that energy go? Addressing the big gaps. So um, funding studies that are a little bit crazy. So biomarkers is what I've mentioned, is one of the really big things that we don't have a good gauge on whether an individual is having a seizure or not. So any sort of development of biomarkers, um, I think is gonna be really important. And of course, we're focusing on cell-free DNA, but there's a lot of um, other types of biological material that you can study there. Um, so you can look at protein levels, you can look at, some folks are looking at crazy little things called exosomes. There's a whole range of different approaches that we could be taking um, that are doing relatively well in other fields, um, where I feel like in epilepsy, it's a little bit neglected right now. And it is so important from the subclinical seizure point of view, particularly during the night, nocturnal seizures, the risk of SUDEP, all those sorts of things I think are, I think there's a great opportunity there with the technologies that we have now that really can detect very, very low levels of protein, RNA, DNA. So I think that's a particularly exciting area of research that needs to be pushed forward. Um, and then I think, Biomarkers aside, I think another area where we need to focus is really on disease models. So we've done a lot of work in, in mice over the last 10, 20 years. Um, but I think that we need to challenge ourselves thinking about new models. Um, animal models, so mouse models specifically, don't always recapitulate um, the phenotype that uh, occurs in humans. So I think thinking about zebrafish, thinking about stem cells, um, organoids, those types of things as well, I think are, are really important moving forward. Absolutely. Gemma, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your um, many years of expertise in this field. And I hope that you get all of the grant money that you need <laughs> in the years to come so you can keep pushing science forward for all of those who are still out there fighting and searching for their answers. Yep, and it's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. And hopefully we'll find many more answers. We'll find biomarkers. We'll solve all the unsolved epilepsy and retire to the beach in 10 years. Done, done Love it. There with you. Thank you, Dr. Carvel, for sharing your knowledge of genetics and your insights about how genetic discoveries can impact those living with epilepsy. As Dr. Carvel explained, there has been great progress in the area of epilepsy research during the past decade, and CURE has been at the forefront. But epilepsy research is still woefully underfunded. Epilepsy affects more people in the U.S. than multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, and Parkinson's combined, yet receives fewer federal dollars per patient than each of these. CURE knows that research is the only way we will develop new therapies to improve the lives of epilepsy patients and their families. To find out how you can support CURE's patient-focused research, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash get involved. Thank you.
The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.